Allow me to start by saying that if you're one of those people who is fortunate enough to have the money to support a company or a person, even when you don't really need the product or service they have, I recommend you buy this game. These people obviously very clearly and demonstrably care about what they're doing, and they have put a lot of time and effort and passion into this project, and it shows. That being stated, this is probably the most definitive example of a coffee game I've seen in a long time. And the off chance you're not familiar with the phrase coffee, coffee refers to something that I don't like but acknowledge is good. In other words, I don't like coffee. I never have. You may make the most excellently crafted cup of coffee ever, which has just the right aroma, just the good additives, and it's got milk, and it's got whipped cream, and whatever else it's got. It doesn't matter. I don't like coffee, so I still don't like it, but I can acknowledge that it's good. Sounds like... I think my second most used lorium at this point, right behind copy wrong. Anyways, this game just didn't work for me. And it took the longest time for me to analyze and figure out why. I say why in the VOD. But of course, part of the point of these post-game ruminations is to summarize the VOD. So allow me to try and do that. I want you to imagine for a moment that you have some Cadbury cream eggs in front of you. Like a pack of 12. It's like, oh, awesome, I love Cadbury cream eggs. You can insert whatever dessert you prefer instead. Now, in order to progress, you have to eat that entire box. I actually have another lorium for this, which I've started using with more and more frequency as I've been reviewing more and more games. I call this Dragon Age 2 Syndrome. Dragon Age 2 Syndrome is when there's gameplay that is good, but something about it is too shallow, or maybe it's just overused, but one way or the other, you have to do the same good gameplay so much it goes from good and becomes bad. The puzzles in this game are excellent. Uh, I, I can probably think of three or four puzzles that are not well designed in the entire game. The combat is interesting. There's good animation canceling. You can re-swap which special attacks you have at will. The HUD is reasonably informative and dynamic, and you can turn off several options with, guard, with guards to it. The, the game itself is very responsive, very tight in terms of how it acts. In fact, I could probably make maybe two or three minor complaints about the combat overall. The, the enemy encounters are varied. Each enemy has its own break mechanic. So you can break an enemy, FF13 style, and then it starts taking real damage and it's effectively stunned for a while. The thing is, unlike FF13, the way you break each enemy is different. To name an example right off the top of my head, there's an enemy where it will spawn adds. Those adds will then become a certain element. If you And then those adds will do a special attack. If you hit them with their opposite element after they do the special attack, I'm actually not sure if you have to do the opposite element, but if you hit them after they do their special attack, they will go, they will break. Then you can shove them physically to the thing that spawned them, which will then break the thing that spawns them. And thus, that's how you manage to beat the enemy, right? There's quite a bit of variety and quite a few different styles for that, between attacking someone who's charging or ensuring someone uh, runs into a wall, or trying to knock someone out of the ground with lightning blasts, or teleporting around while someone is aiming at you so they get confused, you get the idea. So good enemy variety, good encounter design, good core combat, good puzzle design. What's the complaint? I already gave it to you, Dragon Age 2 Syndrome. Because by about the halfway point of the game, I, I can actually tell you, it's about the 15-hour mark through the game, I just wanted to quit. I was so tired of just another room of puzzles and 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 another room of puzzles. Room of puzzles. Or combat encounters that took way, way too long. There's also another complaint which is much more difficult to explain. That's the uh, navigation. 
The overworld is designed like it's a dungeon, which means it's... Let me, re let me walk that back a second. Because I talked about this on stream and several people didn't actually get the point, so I'm going to try and explain this a little bit. Most Zelda games are designed such that the overworld is part of the dungeon experience, but there's usually a completely different mentality behind designing dungeon and designing overworld. I actually discussed this at length when I was reviewing Castlevania Symphony of the Night, because Soten, despite what you might think, is designed like a Zelda game. There's an overworld, which has its own puzzle and encounter elements, but it's mostly designed to just be a smooth experience to go from point A to point B. Then there's the dungeons, which are far more tight, have a lot more enemies, have a lot more actual, you know, jumps or maneuvers you need to make, or special, you know, like you have to do the, the dash up, or you have to use the bat to go through here. You know, there's puzzle design and combat design to the dungeons in Soden. That's what I mean by this, because while Zelda games have overworlds that have puzzle aspects to them, this, there's this clear distinction there between a dungeon and an overworld. In this game, there is not. The overworld, I mean, okay, now I'm, I'm still misspeaking, so allow me to try this one more time. The puzzles are puzzles. They, you know, they're, they're, they hit this, and then you knock this over here, and you have to bounce it off all those things, and you have to knock, you get the energy barrier out of the way in time, so that when it goes around the edge, it hits this switch, which lowers this block, which means it can complete, and then you finish, right? That's the dungeon design, and then there's encounters. But the overworld is still designed like a dungeon, even if they're using a different approach to puzzle design. The overworld is a dungeon, is what I'm trying to say. Just to summarize this, I'm, I'm failing so hard at explaining this, so please bear with me. And I didn't like that, for the exact same reason I didn't like it in a couple of other games I can mention. It's a very rare thing. I don't see this kind of thing often. But what it boiled down to was, in many cases, I just wanted to go from point A to point B, and I couldn't. This is the distinction that I mentioned earlier. In most Zelda games, if you just want to go from point A to point B on the overworld, you can. As long as you have the hammer or whatever, right? And that's just a barrier to entry kind of a thing. In this game, if I want to go from point A to point B, I need to loop around and find the jump to hop across to be able to go here and hit the switch and unlock this thing so I can jump down and use the boost pad to go up over here. And then I have to hit these enemies and knock them over here, which is going to unlock this switch and go for... And you see my point? And that just graded on me after a while. That's probably the most subjective negative I gave the whole game, but it really did grade on me after a while. There is a good fast travel system uh, built into the game, which kind of helps mitigate that. So once you've done the trip, you're kind of done. <sighs> but all of this is why I'm trying to explain why this is such a coffee game for me. If you're really into puzzles, you're probably going to like it. If you're really into the combat, you're probably going to like it. But on the whole, the whole time I just kind of wanted it to be over with. That being stated, I do think it has one other major issue, and if this issue was somehow magically fixed, I do think that I would enjoy this game a lot more. And that's the fact that, well, I already told you this, for the first 15 hours, nothing happens. It's actually 12 hours as a closer marker, but... Now that is at my pace, obviously I'm playing a little bit less slow than most people do, not just because it's my job, but because that's just how I play games in general. For 12 hours, basically nothing happened. No real world building, no real characterization, no real thematic acknowledgement, no real plot development. It's just go do a dungeon and then go do a dungeon and then go do a dungeon. And each one of those go do steps is like several hours because you have to go do the overworld dungeon to get there. Then you get a side quest which involves another overworld dungeon in order to go do the side quest and then you have to do another overworld dungeon to get back to the dungeon. And you get the idea, right? You might not have had to do that last step, but you get, you get the idea. And 
what I was left with was whipped cream. Now, I like whipped cream. But if you put down a plate in front of me and I'm sitting down for dinner and all I have is a plate of whipped cream, we got to have some problems. I need something to sink my teeth into. Now, that did perk up at about the 12-hour mark. Pretty much, I'll go ahead and tell you the moment. It's the moment we go to do the raid. The moment we hit that point in the game, things start actually happening. We get characterization points. We get development of plot. We actually have some world building for the setting. And you get the idea. Story suddenly enters into the game's proper. And the, I, I will also notice that the puzzle design and encounter design got noticeably better from that point onwards. Now, I have been told, but I didn't have a chance to really research that, up until that point was like the early access beta thing, and then after that was development after the game was funded. So it's entirely possible that what we have here is a miniature expansion effect going on, where the first part of the game, the part I didn't like, was them getting used to making the game, and the second part of the game was, now that we know how to make the game, let's make a better game. It, this is all theory. I don't actually know. But this is my biggest point here. If you can, if you enjoy the first part of the game, don't worry about it. If you can manage to get to that point, it'll get much better from that point onwards, one way or the other. I could talk about other elements of how you could do animation canceling in combat, which is awesome, or how it's possible to, to turn on an OCO mode, that is to say, one-hit KO mode. So in other words, you take one hit, you die, which, if you're wondering why that's significant, it means that every encounter in the entire game is designed that there is a way to not get hit by all the enemies. There's no such thing as white damage which is really good design and something I am hugely in favor of. I can mention how the animations were flawless, or how the text, uh, the, the sprite work and the brick work was excellent, or how they bothered to put dozens, if not in the hundreds range, of different animations for the characters for when they're talking and the sprites so that you can actually see some degree of tone that's added to their text. I could talk about how the game uh, manages several moments of nice little levity, and there's some good elements here and there with regards to how the characters interact with each other, and how the game properly showcases the idea of what it would be like to effectively live inside an MMO, although it's the weirdest MMO I've ever seen, but let's not get into that right now. <sighs> I could gush about quite a few aspects of this game. I could. Even the options are good. A huge amount of the HUD is customizable. Ironically, I wish you could customize the HUD even more. I am probably spoiled because I've played games like FF14 and World of Warcraft, which have an absolutely ludicrous amount of customization options when it comes to the HUD. Like, for example, it would be nice to have my health, like, right center, like, right, maybe, like, right above my head kind of a thing. Or maybe just a constant SP gauge, you know, kind of right dead center into the in the things. It's just little stuff like that. But all of this stuff is good design. And, of course, the attention to detail is insane. I can't even explain to you properly how much attention to detail there is in this game. Really. Uh, I've seen a few little tidbits of them actually making and crafting the game. And while they do some tile set stuff, every room is manually and meticulously crafted. They really take their time with this one, and it shows. But let's talk about things that are narrative axis, shall we? You know, after we get to that 12-hour mark. First thing I want to mention is that until I decided to dig into the background lore, which is presented through the encyclopedia, I assumed that this was like one of the moons out on Jupiter or Saturn or something like that, and that this society was solar system locked, right? Now, you're probably thinking, why? Well, because the technology and presentation that they show is actually really low tier, other than the fact that they have this live-action MMO that's happening on this moon that they've set up, right? But then, looking into the background and looking into that, no, 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 this is a galactic civilization. This is a civilization where, uh, there's actually a person, I wrote down his name, uh, Ketan Dakar, De Ketan Dakar, which I'm probably pronouncing wrong, 
He actually flat out mentions at one point that his kids have just gone off and spread throughout the entire galaxy. In the tone of, yeah, the kids went to college, is, is the reason I mentioned that. You know, they, they went off to school kind of a thing. And it's just, oh, oh, so this is that kind of society. We also find out, they mentioned a few times after the 12-hour mark, that there's this colony war thing that used to, ha that happened way back in the day. And it was this big devastating war that happened outside the Orion something. I wrote it down. Uh, the Orion, please tell me I wrote it down. Oh my god. The Orion Spur. There we go. The Orion Spur. If you don't understand why that's significant, the Orion Spur is a huge chunk of the galaxy, which happens to include Earth. So, the fact that this war was happening predominantly outside of the Spur, which kind of gives you an insight into exactly how far out they were a thousand years ago, which is the other thing I found out, by the way. The Colony War was a millennia ago, and it's also the last big war humans have had. Humans had a war. It was devastating. Not everyone knows everything about it, and now we've had a millennia of peace since then. This is when I really started digging into the background lore, and I found out that they have something called quantum porting, which I wrote down here to make sure I got the name right. Quantum porting is how they manage instantaneous communication on a galactic scale and instantaneous transmission on a galactic scale. It is a form of quantum tunneling. That's why they can manage no latency interactions with the physical avatars that are being presented by the instant matter on the moon, no matter where they live in a galactic level. For once, this actually makes a degree of sense, because this is something that was bugging me even when I thought this was stuck within one system. Like, right now, well, that's as bad as When I was streaming this game, you guys were getting more lag from me streaming something on the same planet on a good internet connection than these guys are getting from plugging into an actual avatar which is taking in and putting out a gargantuan amount of information while well, what I assumed was a cross-system. It's actually a cross-galaxy, which is just which is insanely hugely huge. But they manage this through this quantum porting. It does bring up a few questions, though, that, that really got me thinking. First of all, how much of the game is AR? We know several elements are instant matter, and in fact, it's usually obvious what's instant matter. But as I was going through it, I started to get a theory that most of the game, or at least most of the elements of the game, were actually uh, AR elements rather than instant matter elements. Don't explain the difference in the off chance you have no idea what I'm talking about. Instant matter is a form of generated matter. They just, and there it is. It's very, very similar as presented to how holograms work over on Star Trek. I'll get to that in just a second. Now, this matter does have a physicality to it, but it has certain limitations. It doesn't like water after a certain point, maybe. It's really light. We're talking like 15 pounds for an entire body, or I think it was like 5 kilos, something like that. Very, very, very light. And it's also very fragile. So a normal human person just kind of casually gripping some one of their arms would, would probably crush part of the instant matter there, or, or destabilize it at the very least. There's a brilliant scene towards the end where Gotham is walking on instant matter, and it's barely holding up his weight. It's actually cra cracking and shattering under his footstep, just walking normally on it. That's how fragile it is. Now... The benefit, so that, that kind of brings down the, the usefulness of instant matter, because you can't use it for like mining or uh, conflict or warfare, because it, it would only work against other instant matter, right? However, there's two things that I got thinking about that. I mentioned the AR thing. So we know that certain elements of the game are AR. The one thing we know with total certainty is the shots we do. I suspect that the melee swings and the special attacks are all AR as well and not actually happening. 
The reason that's significant is the only, obviously the AR, sorry, AR stands for augmented reality. I apologize. If you've ever played one of those games like, say, Pokemon Let's Go, and you pull up your phone, and the phone has a camera, so the camera's looking there, and the phone projects a picture onto whatever the camera is pulling, that's AR. So the, the, the point here is AR is when a non-physical entity, a digital entity, interacts with the physical reality, and you interact with the digital entity. Right? So we know that uh, the shots are AR and the, the special attacks and whatnot like that. I, I suspect that a lot more is AR, because if nothing else, it would be a lot cheaper and easier to do. For example, the plants, or the enemies. You're probably thinking, well, wouldn't the enemies be instant matter? Well, think about this for a second. If the enemies and plants are all virtual, as in they're only digital constructs and they only exist within the AR server, that means that they know instantly and how to interact with all of your AR interactions, notably your attacks. So that's why you can shoot a plant and it goes away. It also means that it's all by nature instanced because they're only beaming the information of those plants and those animals to your uplink. So you're the only one who sees your shots and you're the only one who sees the actual effects of those shots. So other people could be running around and doing whatever regardless of what you're doing at the time. There would be some exceptions to this, of course. For example, if PvP match probably turns because of the fact that the PvP block shows up, everyone can now see all the AR effects that are going on within. Just little stuff like that. If you're in a party, you know, similar thing. If this sounds out of bounds, I want to remind you that MMOs now have this kind of tech, this kind of layering tech. Uh, one of my favorite examples of that is World of Warcraft, where you have the ability to effectively turn off seeing other people's spell effects. So you can see a mage doing this, but nothing's happening. You can also turn it on, and if you do, well, then you can see the fireball he just cast at the enemy. So it's the exact same concept here. The next thing, though, that that got me thinking about was, well, how are they projecting the instant matter? Because it has to be projected by something in order to, to develop, in order to, to generate. It has to be generated by something. What's generating the instant matter? Now, I did some looking into this. Nothing answers this question. I came up with two dominant theories, and then I merged them into one theory. So let me tell you the two theories first. First of all, satellites. There's some kind of satellite network. I mean, this, this only has to cover this relatively small area, the island, right? So it would be pretty easy to have a network of satellites that could affect pretty much total coverage over the island at any given point in time. So they, are, they actually are the generators, the remote generators, the holodeck, if you will, that's generating the holograms. I told you that come back up. Because you need something to actually project the matter, right? Especially since it has to be able to be reprojected at will thanks to the way respawning works. The second thing, though, is, well, there's a lot of lines and equipment and circuitry and all sorts of stuff that runs throughout the area. Now, we don't know exactly how much of the island is instant matter and how much of it is physical matter. I suspect, this is pure headcanon, that the island has a fairly large amount of physical matter and then there's effectively a layer, a cake layer on top of that of instant matter, and that forms what you actually interact with throughout the course of the game, right? This would then explain the projection thing. You see those little circuit things all over the place, or just little, uh, the little signs, or just there's, there's signs of circuitry and uh, equipment throughout the whole area. Now, in-game they talk about that as though it's the track, but that's the in-game, in-game explanation, not the in-game explanation. Discussing the lore of this game is weird. <clears throat> so my idea is that some of those are, in fact, projectors, most notably inside of internal structures, like inside the dungeons or inside of caves. 
So they have the ability to project indoors, whereas the satellite may or may not be able to actually reach. This would also help to project uh, certain types of instant matter for puzzles or design or whatever it is they have to actually do. You can see why I merged these two ideas, because that would be the cheapest option, right? You put the, the projectors where you really need them. In the towns, for example, because you're going to have a lot of need for a lot of instant matter being projected at any given point in time in a town. In the dungeons, because people are, duh, right? And inside caves and stuff, so you can make sure you have coverage. And then the majority of just the overworld, the like 90% of the actual landmass, that's all covered by the satellites. And they have not as good coverage, but they're still sufficient for just wandering around the overworld. This could also explain why things happen like what happened with Emily. Oh, by the way, I have no idea how to pronounce the names of anybody in this game, so I'm not even going to try. This would explain what happened with Emily, where she just, ah, and it took, like, almost a solid minute for her to be reconstituted, because she was effectively in the overworld at that point, in one of the guild halls, so. So that's me. This is all theory, of course. I have no idea. It's one of the things that got me most thinking about the game. There's two other things that got me thinking about this game. I have the other one right up here on the side. There's log entries you can find throughout the game that give a little bit of background lore. Um, I'm just going to read one of them for you here. Log entry 104. Today two things happened. First, our ship is going home. Everyone's pretty exhausted and no one has nothing new has been found. Well, except the strange signals, which is the second thing that happened. The repair routine is finally done. It might not have recovered much, but here we go. Get to this in a second, but it lists the... Uh, well, okay. So the actual message is really hard to read. It's like, where as all I began. Planet. Ah, Asin W3. Total nonsense. FFG. Move. Total nonsense. Singularity imminent. Only save, I think. Safe our home. Ship. Protect humans. Now this is, it's, it's garbled to hell. This, this is not straight English. But then the log entry continues. Where it all began? Some planet they called home? No wonder the seniors are so interested in this. Are we close to finding a new inhabitable? In Old War territory? But what is this about a singularity? I can't imagine them talking about a real one. That would be insane. But a new planet? After this message, there's bound to be more expeditions into the SOS sector. Now, they could mean a singularity in the sense of a quantum singularity, but I imagine this actually is referring to the digital singularity, AI. This would add another layer to the game, since the whole game is about... I've, I've talked this long without spoiling anything, so this is your big spoiler warning. The Evotars, and the fact that they are a form of AI. I say a form of AI, they are patterned AI. So, one of the biggest problems with designing AI in real life, but also in fiction, is how do you get them to the point of true sentience and sapience? Even a very advanced machine can't really think for itself, it just it doesn't work that way. It's one of the problems, because we don't understand our own brains enough to understand how we don't understand our own brains well enough, right? We may or may not ever bypass that in, in our lives. I have no idea if we'll ever get there. We are certainly not there now. In fact, we are frankly nowhere near there right now, despite the advances we've made. Thus, some science fiction does this. They cheat. They simply skip the whole sentient sapiens thing by duplicating a human brain into a digital one. Bam. What they've effectively done is made a digital clone, but, thanks to how cloning works, the moment that clone exists and comes into existence, they are effectively a new person, since they will, from that point onward, develop in a new and different way and become a different individual. So, the Evotars aren't really a singularity. They are simply a form of AI. But if there is any AI problems in the past of this setting, you can see why this might cause problems. For the sake of completion, by the way, I should mention that I'm recording this uh, in October of 2020. 
<laughs> since this is not one of the ones, this is a post-game stream, not a not a standard thing, which means that the DLC is not out yet. And I know there is going to be a post-game DLC, and I don't know anything about it, so maybe they'll answer some of these questions there. The second thing I wanted to talk about is Sidwell. And as usual with these videos, I have a question for you. What do you think his motivation was? Now, the early on in the game, I started questioning the villain, because the game seemed well-written enough that I couldn't just write off the villain as being <laughs> torture puppies, which is usually an aspect of bad writing. So I found myself thinking, well, okay, why is he doing what he's doing? And throughout the course of the game, I got more and more confused by that. I'm also 100% convinced that Katron is either him or his son or his friend or his lover or whatever. Someone who physically is a part of his life or has been present in his life. It's probably just him. That is the easiest answer. But both answer the same. Both fulfill the problems equally. I mean, there's plenty of evidence for this. I'm not going to go down the list of, you know, Katron, who wasn't present for the final battle, or the fact that he was actually trying to convince us to go into a second raid, which would enable them to recapture us, or anything like that. No. The point is, I think Katron, 100%, either is Sidwell, or, you know, is Sidwell's avatar, or is someone very, very close and connected to Sidwell. The reason I bring all that up is Katron also mentioned several things, including stars and how insignificant we are, and how interested he is in biology and life forms. The reason I bring that up is because I absolutely adore the idea that Sidwell's primary motive here is to develop new life. Now, I'm not trying to... Let's be clear. I'm not trying to say he's a good person. That's, that's not the intent. This is someone who was torturing sentient sapient beings in order to make money. That, that, that's not a good person. But at the same time, I found myself wondering several times, was he doing it because the budget that it brought in enabled him to do what he really cared about, or was someone else forcing him to do it so he would be allocated the budget needed to do what he really cared about. In both cases, this is theory, in both cases I don't think he actually cared about the money directly. I think the money was the means to the ends, and I think the ends was developing the new life, the Evotar thing, the Evotar project. I think he showed a very real and actual interest in Lee, or Leah, or however you want to pronounce that, the main character, blue hair, and I think that he really did want to advance this because of just his own mentality and mindset. I also think he personally connected with us on various levels, most likely because we reminded him of his friend who may or may not still be alive, since they, they get, they're kind of vague about that. The woman who was mute, who he, he, by his own words, formed an actual connection with rather than a shallow and distant one. See, all of his discussions make me think that he is an overall decent person at heart, who has adapted to living in a very corporate environment, and as a direct result of that, has become a unpleasant, negative, evil person. You know, we are only as good as our, our society allows us to be, and blah, 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 blah. In a world without gold, we'd be heroes. You get the quote. So I look at Sidwell, and I wonder about those motives. And again, I'm curious of your thoughts as well. I'm very, very curious, because it's entirely possible that all of that was just to push this. It's also possible he didn't really have a long-term goal in mind. It's like, okay, well, I need to justify the budget to make this happen. So we're going to rip information out of people, and that'll enable us to sell that information. Okay, cool. Um, 
And then we need to, what else can we do? Uh, we could try to further the, the con concepts of understanding how they work and how they remember. Like, there's options here, right? I don't know. What do you guys think? I wonder, once again, if any of these things will actually be answered when we get to that DLC, which is supposed to come out probably about four to five months from now, from what I have heard. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on this game. I will see you next time, guys.